0: I was standing at the back to see how the rearrangement of our chairs was going, by the way, today. And um, thank you for the feedback, all of you. We had many people give us feedback, said, put it back the other way. But as I stood back there, one of the effects that it had was I was just filled with joy um, of seeing God's people worshiping together and seeing that, you know, we're not just a church, but this is a family that we come to rejoice together, to celebrate together. So really every weekend is like a holiday as we come to celebrate gathering together to worship Jesus. And so, so glad to have you. If you are a guest, thanks for being here. My name is Matt Rawlings. I'm one of the pastors, and we um, are grateful that you joined together with us. Uh, Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 12. Continuing in our series on the parables and miracles of Jesus. We're getting to know who Jesus is as the King. And what does his kingdom look like? What does coming to Jesus look like? What does responding to Jesus look like? And so we are going to be continuing to see that in Mark chapter 2, 1 through 12. This is God's holy inspired word for us today. And when he returned to Capernaum, some, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven. Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, take up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Let's pray. Father, I pray that That your word would be made alive to us this morning. God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts and our minds. God, I pray that you would wake us up to your amazing forgiveness. God, I pray that you would enliven our hearts and minds, that you would fill us with joy afresh, that you've met our greatest need. You've forgiven us our sins. So, Father, I pray that you would help all of us as we hear your words and help me as I preach your words, Lord. May we give our attention to you, Lord. May we submit our hearts, our minds, and our lives to you. And, Lord, would you would you meet each and every one of us specifically this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you know, passages like this can be very challenging. I I have an overhead for you that's going to kind of explain why it's. It's a little simplistic, but I think you have it back there. It's a, there you go. Excellent. Um case hey, anybody know what that is? Graph. It's a flannel graph. Excellent. I can tell which of you were raised in Southern Baptist churches, so, or just Baptist churches. Um, I, I was raised kind of with that flannel graph background as well. And, and the passages like this can be difficult because that's kind of how we see passages like this at times. We can kind of see them as this Kind of all oh, this nostalgic thing experience this this warm kind of fuzzy thing that kind of gives us warm feelings, warm memories, and and it can kind of be maybe cute or, but it can be kind of flat, kind of two dimensional to us at times. If you've heard this account many times, it can kind of become like a flary graph fan, uh, fairy tale. Boy, ugh. a flannel graph fairy tale. I can say that again three times. Um, <laughs> It's a good story, but it's one that's really only for kids. That's how it seems. You just kind of read through it and you gloss over it. Maybe that pops up in your, um, your your quiet times, your devotionals, and you read through the story and you don't think much of it. and think, oh, that's really neat. Jesus has power. That's cool. That guy was healed. And you move on. Or maybe you think, uh, you know, that must have been cool to be there. Or, boy, it must have been funny to see those guys digging through the roof like that. Can you imagine if you're standing inside the house? And I don't know if it was Peter's house or Jesus' mom's house or whose it was. But could you imagine, like, the reaction of what in the world is going on? Or maybe you think, you know, is there really a lesson for us today? Is there just something back then? Just something, some story from our childhood? Or maybe you come a little more skeptically. Maybe you think, I don't think so. I don't believe that's really true. I don't think that that could have happened. I think that's just a story that people tell. It's for the weak-minded who need a crutch to prop themselves up on or make themselves feel better. Or maybe you think, what's the big deal? Isn't Jesus supposed to heal people after all? So is it really that shocking, surprising? Doesn't Jesus just do that? Doesn't he heal? Isn't that what his business is? He heals people. He did that. He forgives people. He did that. Not a big deal. Let's move on. And maybe you end up treating it like a flannel graph in your heart but i think we need to ask ourselves you know how do we respond when we hear stories accounts like this that we've heard a hundred times if you're if have been a believer for a while you know maybe maybe we need to ask ourselves some questions maybe we need to approach the passage differently maybe we need to ask ourselves how how am i coming to this passage how, how are we coming to passages like this? How do we come to this passage? How do we react to this account? Think about this morning. How, how can you apply this passage to yourself? Maybe you notice as we read the account that Jesus bothered the scribes and, and you wonder, what did he say that bothered them so much? After all, he just he just forgave somebody. That's not a big deal. We forgive people all the time, or at least we're supposed to when they sin against us. and Maybe... Maybe you think, why were the people amazed at the end? And, and am I amazed? Is that my reaction when I read this, this morning? Is that Was that your reaction as I read the account and at the end of the account, were you thinking, I'm amazed and I want to glorify God? If not, why not? Why was that not your response? Maybe I would say you're treating it like I often do, like a flannel graph story. For most of us, I think it's helpful if we approach the account by asking questions that Mark answers for us. I, my, my mother-in-law still religiously watches Jeopardy. I don't even know if it's still on. Is Jeopardy still on? Anybody know? Yes. Is it? Yes, it's still on. Excellent. Um, I used to love to watch that show with her. It was one of the, we, the things that I could, few things that I could relate to her on because we both tended to know a lot of the answers to random facts that were useless. And... Um, <laughs> At least that's what my family tells me. Yeah, you're full of all kinds of facts. I don't know if they're any good, but... So I would love it because the contestants are given clues in the forms of answers. And so they're given a category, they're given the answer, and then they have to come up with a question. The question is the the answer to the riddle. And so you've given the answer. And so I, I, want, I kind of look at this account, this parable, this, this miracle as that. We're given all the answers... But then we have to come up with, what are the right questions? What are the right questions in response to the answers that we have here? And, and one of the first right questions that we have to respond to this account, we're meant to respond to this account with, you know, if we get the cheat sheet from Alex Trebek, we get the cheat sheet, and one of the first things that we say is, okay, Alex, what is our need? Because this 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 miracle points to our need. It might not be obvious right away, but it, it really points to our need. And so the right question to the answer of the account is what is our need or what is our greatest need i want you to stop and think about that question for a moment this morning maybe when you got up this morning you were aware of all kinds of needs or desires you know what were you aware of this morning when you when you got up And when i when i got up this morning one of the first things i was aware of was my need for coffee um I, i I, I went downstairs, I trudged, and I, and I made some espresso, and, uh, and, I, and it, it, was, it was life-giving to me. <laughs> maybe your need today was coffee or food, or maybe for others it was a shower, and we're grateful for that. And maybe for some it was for strength or physical ability to just get up. Maybe you're feeling crummy today, and you're, you're struggling with some weakness or disability or inability Maybe for those with kids, maybe you're like me and you can't remember a time in the last 15 years when you slept through a whole week worth of nights. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking pretty soon I'll get to that place. Pretty soon. We're, we're close. Uh, my youngest is two and a half, almost three. And I'm thinking pretty soon we'll get to sleep through the night for a week. This is going to be awesome. But maybe you're like me and you have permanent black bags under your eyes from lack of sleep. So you're aware of that need maybe for some... You're aware of a pressing financial need and you don't know how that's going to work out. Maybe others are just feeling lousy and you're aware of your your need, your desire to be healed. Maybe you you woke up with this wonderful fall time, allergies or cold. It is good to come to Jesus with our needs. In fact, God tells us to come to us with with our needs, doesn't He? In, in, In Psalms 81, 10... Now God says, I am the Lord your God. He says, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he tells them, he says, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Jesus tells us in Luke twelve twenty four. he says, consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn. Yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And the implication there is that we're to come to him and trust in him for all that we need. Jesus then continues to tell us in Matthew 7, 7, he actually commands us to come to him with our needs. And he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Are you aware of your needs? Do you come to him with your needs? What are your needs today? Philippians four nineteen tells us that, he says, and my God will supply every need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. paralytic and and his friends in the story they no doubt believe this man's greatest need was to be healed if you were a a paralytic i'm thinking you too would want to be healed we have a lot of folks in our church who struggle with chronic debilitating diseases and illnesses and chronic pain Uh, i'm aware that you have a desire to be healed it's a good desire But what was this man's greatest need, really? You see, Jesus answers that, and we have to ask ourselves that question in response. What is our need? What is the greatest need? Because that's the point that Jesus is driving towards. Um, This man is coming, and he's wanting to get healed. Somehow the word had gotten out that Jesus was staying in Capernaum at a house that says he was home don't know if that was his mother's home, his family home. They had moved to Capernaum or if it was where Peter lived in Capernaum and it was Peter's home, but wherever it was, Jesus was at home here and somehow the word got out and everybody came thronging to the house. They all came to hear Jesus, to see Jesus. They wanted to, to see what he would he would do. They wanted to hear what he would say. Maybe they wanted to meet him. If you ever have had a favorite celebrity or somebody you looked up to, you probably have been there. Like, oh, I'd love to meet that guy. I'd love to hear him, I'd love to see him. And they were coming with a little bit of that curiosity, that celebrity kind of curiosity to Jesus. And we know that everywhere Jesus went, he healed people. And So maybe, maybe the people who were throwing me around were looking to be healed. People were crowding outside the doorway, it said. They were they crowd the house so much, they crowded outside the doorway that nobody could get in or out anymore. And, and yet there is these, this, this group was on its way to get its need met. And the need was to their, have their friend, the paralytic man, healed. And so these four guys, they carry their paralytic friend. We don't know if it was a family member or just a a childhood friend or whatever, but they're carrying him and they intended to bring the man to Jesus. They needed to get to Jesus, but there was no way they could do it. So they got a little creative. I don't know which one of them thought, hey, you know what? Can't get in the door. We're going to go down from the top. And they probably all paused for a second. And we're like, uh, All right, sure. Let's do that. And so they went up on the outside steps from the outside of the house and went up onto the roof. And, and then they started ripping the roof off. You know, I, I can't imagine <laughs> the reaction, not only of the people inside, but the people all around wondering, What are those guys doing? What are they doing up there? They're ripping the roof apart. And the roof, you know, is probably put together with beams and rafters. Wouldn't have been impossible to get through. It had beams and rafters, and they stacked mud on top, and they would have been about a foot thick. But you could get into the roof relatively easily. And so they are determined to get this man's needs met, to get what they came for. And and it doesn't tell us what motivated them. But obviously, whatever the cause, whatever the relationship, they cared about this man. They loved the man enough to say, we need to get this need met. We need this man's need of healing to be met. And so they break through the roof and they lower their friend down. It's just I just can't imagine that scene in my head. And if you're whoever owned that house, <laughs> I'm just thinking, I don't like it when people mess up, you know, the wall or whatever, or they, they, they mess up the roof, and I don't like it when I had a storm and, and water was dripping down and my roof was messed up because of the storm, and I couldn't imagine my roof getting torn apart. i thinking, what are you doing? And if it was Simon Peter's house, I can just imagine Peter's response. I mean, he, he, he wasn't a soft-spoken guy. And so, you know, he probably didn't have homeowner's insurance. And, and so he's kind of like, you're going to pay for that, all right? And, and they, they come through the ceiling. They break through... And they lower their friend down and it kind of interrupts. Jesus is preaching the word and it interrupts everything. And they lower this man down right in front of Jesus. And then you think, well, surely, you know, if somebody did that here right now, I think we'd have to stop the message and say, hang on. Okay, we've got to attend to this. This is a little bit, you know, you can't just keep going when something like that happens. And so you think, okay, well, Jesus is going to do what he always does, right? And he's going to heal the man, but he doesn't do that to begin with. They have doubtless an expectation that they gotta get their friend there, and if they get their friend there, Jesus is gonna heal him because he really needs to be healed. But Jesus does something different on purpose. He's a paralyzed man, but he doesn't heal him to begin with. He does something that's shocking, that would have been shocking to that man, would have been shocking to the friends, would have been shocking to everybody around him. You said, okay, well Jesus, he's gonna, he's gonna, we've seen this before, he's gonna bend over, he's gonna touch him, he's gonna heal him, or he's gonna say, okay, you're healed. But he doesn't. He said something that surprised me. But he says, "My son," which, first of all, denotes that he has authority over him. It wasn't just a term of endearment or affection, although it probably was an affectionate term. He says, "My son, your sins are forgiven." Think about that. If you were the paralytic man, wouldn't you, wouldn't you think it was a little strange? You know, if you're if you're coming to a prayer meeting and you're just like, "I just want to, I just want to be healed." And then and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. You'd be like, what? okay. Think about it. It's a little odd, isn't it? Seems a little strange. Why did Jesus say that? Couldn't he tell the man he needed to be healed? Didn't he know he'd upset the religious leaders? Didn't he know his room? Didn't he look around and see his audience? It was full of scribes. And he'd think, hey, there's some religious leaders here. I don't want to shake things up. I don't want to make them feel uncomfortable. I don't want to make everybody okay. So I'm just going to heal this guy. And then he's going to go on from there. You know, that'll that'll speak volumes. I'll just heal the guy, and that'll speak volumes, and then they'll see who I really am. But he didn't do that, and he didn't do that on purpose because he was trying to reveal something here. This this miracle reveals something critical, and that is what our greatest need is, what this man's greatest need was, what our greatest need is. You see, Jesus was far too loving and too caring to just heal the man. That would actually have been unkind if he began that way. You ever think about that? You know, if Jesus had healed a man and let him think his physical paralysis was his greatest need and then he let the man go, the man could have left still doomed to the same eternal separation and judgment from God that he was lowered in there with. My my mom died recently of cancer and I was thinking just... We were sad and yet filled with joy because we knew that no matter what happened to her body the most important thing had already been done is that she'd been forgiven and she was going to go and be with Jesus. If Jesus had just merely healed the man, it would have communicated that he was he was a great prophet and and he was indeed powerful, but they would have missed the greater intention of why he came. He wanted to make sure everybody knew that the biggest miracle was not the healing, but the biggest miracle was the forgiveness. So he does the hardest thing first. the greatest healing that he could accomplish was the forgiving of the sins of humanity, and in doing that, Jesus was kind of declaring an open war um, on on sin and all of its effects, including sickness. Those friends, they probably thought that the what the paralyzed man really needed was to be physically healed, but what he really needed, Jesus saw through that, was that he really needed to be pardoned by God himself. That doesn't mean that the man's sins caused his paralysis directly, and, and there's other places where Jesus makes that clear when a, a blind man comes to Jesus and they said, that this, this man's sin caused me blind? He says, no, this man was blind because I wanted to draw attention to myself and I wanted to glorify God. And so it, it's not that sin is directly a cause for weakness and suffering, but... But in our lives, weakness and suffering and sickness are a result of the bigger problem that we all have with sin. The problem that sin has entered into the world and has so corrupted our nature, our physical bodies, is so corrupted all the world around us that we need deliverance from sin. And Jesus knows that. He knew that. And he saw that. And so he says, my son, your sins are forgiven. The greatest thing you need, the thing that you need the most, that the world needs most, I'm going to do now. So that you're not confused into thinking that your physical healing is somehow greater or more insignificant or important than what you really need. The fundamental problem of humanity and and, and our personal fundamental problem is that we've all sinned against God. And that we, apart from deliverance from that sin, we all deserve punishment and penalties for disobeying our creator who has a right over us he created us he created the whole world and everything in it and so um, as creation as creatures we have an obligation to him to obey him to live as he says and when we don't do that when we haven't done that we've disobeyed that we rightly incur his judgment and so we have a big problem our biggest problem is sin and i was thinking as i was preparing for the message today you know it's Sin, it's insidious. It tempts us. It lures us. It tempts me. It lures me. It, it appeals to my desires and claims to be able to satisfy them. That's a problem. You know, what do I struggle with in my daily life? Is when when I think that the, the momentary pleasures of this world, the fleeting pleasures of the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, when I think those things will satisfy me, And then I give in to those things. Well, that's that causes problems for me. And sin justifies itself in my life by elevating itself to that which is deserved or needed. And so I get to the place where I feel like I need respect or I deserve gratification or I need to feel good or I need relief or I need whatever. And all of those are the result of sin. And that's actually what causes a lot of the problems in our relationships and then in my heart as well. Sin is a big problem for all of us. Sin's also a problem because it distracts us from what truly is good. And so sin offers some seemingly good things. And, and sometimes there really are good things. But it's to distract us from seeing that the greatest thing is God himself. And so sin offers just the good to keep us from what is great. Sin can also make us fearful and timid. Can make us fearful and timid in approaching God. You ever have the problem where you've you've committed a sin and you feel distant from God and you feel like I, I don't feel like I can pray, I don't feel like I can read God's word, and and I get more and more distant. Or you ever feel fearful and timid because you know you sinned against somebody, or you've done something to offend them, or you've been offended by them, and, and fear and separation occurs as a result of sin. Timidity enters into relationships instead of faith in relating to people faith in god sin can also make us feel unworthy sin leaves us dissatisfied and empty it dulls our hearts and senses and if we let sin go on for long enough you get to a place where your heart just kind of is dull you don't feel anymore become lifeless become empty you ever feel that way i have maybe you're there today that's a problem The problem, though, is not to fill your life with things that make you feel better and entertainment and gratification or drown those feelings with alcohol or or drugs or whatever whatever your solution is. The problem is to get rid of our biggest problem, which is sin. You see, sin makes us numb to the things of God and numb to experiencing His joy. And maybe you're thinking this morning, how much joy this morning? Do you really understand your greatest need has been resolved? Sin makes our hearts callous towards God, and so our greatest need we see is forgiveness. The question is, have we personally heard Jesus say to us, son or daughter, your sins are forgiven? If so, we can be confident he's met our greatest need. And if he's met our greatest need, we can trust him with every other lesser need. But do you see that that really is our greatest need, and every other need does not compare no matter what it feels like you see in Romans eight thirty two, it tells us something it says um, he who did not spare his own son but freely gave him up for us all for what for the forgiveness of our sins to pay for our sins how will he not also with him freely give us every what does it say graciously give us all things And for us, if he's met our greatest need and if he's supplied this, how will he not also with Jesus? So if we see that our greatest need and forgiveness has been met, that will actually give us faith to trust in the fact that if our greatest need has been met, surely he's graciously going to give us all the things that we truly do need and that'll point us to trust in him and rest in him. Well, I can only imagine, though, even though the the paralyzed man did not expect to hear the word, son, your sins are forgiven, I can imagine, though, his heart was warmed and stirred. You know, as you're sitting here today and, and you're hearing, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven, is your heart warmed? Is it stirred? He must have had joy in hearing the word of forgiveness spoken over him by the Son of God himself. Think of who speaks that word of forgiveness over you. It's not me. It's God through his word saying, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. We're not sure, but it doesn't say that he he objected. It doesn't say his friends objected. But we do know that not everybody reacted positively to what Jesus did here. You see, the scribes, they were paid, paid teachers of the law, they were paid to study the law and the nuances of it and, and see, okay, does this fit within what we see in the Bible? And they were religious lawyers, they were interpreting the implications of the law, and they objected. And they objected because they didn't believe something that was, was critical for us to see is, is the question that we need to answer. And that's that they didn't see that Jesus had authority for forgive sins. He said something that was unique. And if you think about this and think about all the other major world religions and all the other so-called gods or heads of all the major world religions, none of them can rightly claim and back it up that they have the ability to forgive sins. Actually, that whole idea of forgiveness of sins is a foreign concept in many religions as well. But Jesus does something unique here. He himself grants forgiveness. And it's something that Muhammad or Buddha or Moses can't claim on their own. But not only did Jesus claim it, he backed it up. That's what he was doing. This whole miracle was not about the healing. It was about pointing to our greatest need and that he has the authority. And so really the second answer to the question, the second question to all the answer of this account, if we're still playing Jeopardy, the second question would be, Alex, what is our authority? What is our authority, or maybe who is our authority? You see, verse six tells us some of the scribes were questioning Jesus in their hearts. They didn't believe what Jesus had said, and they didn't believe he had the authority that he could forgive sins. And after after all, couldn't just anybody say those words? And they couldn't prove it. And so they're doubting it, and they're wondering why. Who, who is this man? You know, who, who, who what gives him the right? Who is he? Why does this man speak like that? Look in verse 7, it says, He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They knew that only God could forgive sins, and they were committed ultimately against God. So how in the world can Jesus say, My son, your sins are forgiven, as if he's God? So they accused him of blasphemy in their hearts. And for us today, it might not seem like a big deal, but for Jews in that day, blasphemy was considered the worst of all sins and it was punishable by death, by stoning. And Jesus here, he's got the audacity to publicly and completely pardon this man's sins, to do something that only God could do. And he was granting a pardon. He wasn't saying that I have forgive you for something that you did against me earlier today. He was saying, my son, all of your sins are forgiven. And if all sins are against God, then he was in fact claiming to be God. You know, maybe you are here and you're thinking, well, Jesus was just a good prophet or a good teacher. But God? I don't think so that's what the pharisees were thinking it was simply too much for them and their men minds and jesus made a good side show he was maybe even an interesting teacher but there's no way that he had authority to to forgive only god could do that but it's interesting to think that their reaction is not too different from many today many claim jesus was a good moral teacher he's a good moral example he's He's very kind. He gives an example to follow. Others say, well, he's a prophet, but he's not God. Other people say, well, he's a son of God, but not God himself. But you can't come to this miracle and have that conclusion. You can't be okay with Jesus if you think that way. If, If any of those things are true, you couldn't believe what Jesus himself taught. You see, Jesus was claiming to be God when he says, my son, your sins are forgiven. He was claiming something that's unique here. And so he he wouldn't be good to be claiming that he's God if he, in fact, was not God. He'd be deceitful, he'd be manipulative, he'd be a liar. But you see, if, if you believe that Jesus is who he taught he is, and if you believe that what he did in the New Testament. Then there's no other reasonable conclusion to reach, especially from this passage when he says, my son, your sins are forgiven. He's saying, I'm claiming to be God that I can, is my right, my authority as a creator to forgive all sins. And I'm going to back it up by proving it by healing this man. And so if you come to this passage, there's no other reasonable conclusion that Jesus has the authority for, to forgive sins. He talks as if he's God. And they react, and they think, you can't do that, because only God can forgive sins. And they were right that only God can forgive sins, but they were wrong because they didn't see that Jesus is and was God. So Jesus backs it up. He says, which is easier for me to do? For me to... He asks them a question, and, and, and he anticipates their answer. He says, what's easier for me to do? To say, my son, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? And so they're probably thinking, well, of course it's easier just to say, my, my, my son, your sins are forgiven. So Jesus said, but I want to show you something so that you know that I have authority. I'm going to tell you that I can heal this guy. And so he says, get up, take up your bed and walk so that you know that I have authority to forgive sins. And he says, basically, he's saying, I want you to see that I not only claim to be God, but I can prove that I'm God by backing up my claim." Throughout the book of Mark, it's evident the son of man, he calls himself the son of man, is no other than the son of God. After all, it's the, the very opening of the book of Mark. In Mark, in Mark 1-1, Mark writes the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And that's the scandal of Jesus, that he's a man of authority to forgive sins. And Jesus proves His authority to forgive sins. And he commands this man to get up, to take up his, his own sick bed. Think about that. He was carried in on this bed, and then the irony, Jesus says, hey, Show that you're no longer sick by picking up your own bed and going out and walking, showing that you are free under now I've given you the power, I've given you the strength to get up and walk. And then he tells him something else. He says, Go go home. Isn't that kind of funny? He tells the man, Go home. Why is that? Why did he tell the man go home? I mean, why did he say, Hey, rise, take up your bed, now sit in the corner and listen to the rest of what I teach? He told the man go home because he didn't need to stay around anymore. Why? Because his greatest need had been met. He didn't need to hear more that day at least. He, his greatest need had been met and he needed to go and rest in the authority of Jesus in forgiving his sins and making him healed. He could be certain of the good news that Jesus had forgiven him all sins and, and he didn't need to stick around. All of his needs had been met. And so with a word, Jesus brought strength out of utter weakness and with the word, Jesus brought peace to this man. As we approach passages like this though, I think we can look at it as a flannel graph and think, well, that's that's really good, that Jesus forgave this man's sins, but he doesn't really do that for me. Or maybe you're a Christian here today and you're thinking, well, I trusted in Jesus' forgiveness of my sins, but you don't know what I've done since then. You don't know the evil thoughts that I've had since then. You don't know what I've looked at. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what um, I've done that was unseen, and you don't know how guilty I really am. And so what we really do is we place ourselves as the authority. As if we're God and we know better than Jesus who says, I have authority to forgive sins. And we disbelieve Jesus when he says, I have authority to forgive sins and to prove it I'm going to heal this man and I want you to go and know that your sins are forgiven. But maybe you're here today and, and you need to answer that question. Am I doubting Am I doubting the forgiveness of my own sin? If so, who's the authority in your life? I think you have that answer. It's that you're, you're your own authority. But don't do what the scribes did. They, they assumed they were the authority over Jesus. Instead, respond and say, Jesus, I'm sorry. I, please forgive me. I've, I've been so proud that I believed my sins were not forgivable. I've thought that, that I was the authority. It sounds kind of backwards doesn't it to say that you know if you're really discouraged and down and depressed over the fact that you've committed sins and you don't feel like you can be forgiven it sounds backwards to to say that that's actually a form of pride but it is because it's confessing that I know better than Jesus that I'm a greater authority than him that he really can't forgive my sins where do you find yourself this morning who's your authority what authority are you looking for the greatest authority is Jesus? Do we allow Him to be our authority to forgive sins? Do we come to Him as our authority? Do we receive the forgiveness of sins? Maybe you are not a Christian here this morning. You've not placed your faith in Jesus, and and you're confronted by this miracle. You need to see that you are not the authority. He's the Creator. He's the one who has all the authority over all of life. And you need to come to Him and say, Jesus, I submit to You. You are the authority. Please forgive me of my sins because they need to be forgiven. And then how do we respond to him as our authority? Do we respond to him? Well, see, the last question that we have to answer, our last Jeopardy question, that we answer the truth of this passage with, is the question of what is our response? What's our response, Alex? Verse 12, it tells us, the man got up, it says, and he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before all of them so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. We see a few responses there. We see a response to the man, and we see a response to the people. The response to the man, he gets up and he takes up his bed. It doesn't mean the man healed himself. This isn't that the guy had enough faith, and so because he had enough faith, his faith healed him. No, Jesus responded to his faith, but... The man was healed when Jesus spoke a word over him. And so he picks up his bed and he goes out in front of all of them. His response was to obey Jesus when Jesus tells him to get up. When Jesus told him his sins were forgiven, his response was to believe that. His response was to get up. His response was to obey and then go out. I can only imagine the cheers, the shouts of joy really from the rooftop as his friends were up there looking down and they probably ran down the steps to greet the man. What a response there must have been in everybody who saw this miracle happen. And the crowd rightly realized that Jesus is altogether different. Do you realize that Jesus is altogether different? How do you respond to him today? If you were struggling in worship this morning to respond with all you are, I want to challenge you. How do you respond to him today? Do you see... How great he is. Do you see he's the, the, the son of God, the son of man? Do you see his authority to forgive sins? Do you see he's forgiven your sins? Do you see that he's forgiven your spiritual paralysis? Do you see you're the paralyzed man? that somebody else brought you to Jesus in effect? I mean, everybody here was brought to Jesus in some way. Through a friend, a family member, relative, parent, whoever. Do you respond to him like that? This miracle though ultimately shows us this picture of this greater reality that this man was more paralyzed by sin and so Jesus did the harder thing first before he did the easier thing in healing him. You see, sin, it paralyzes, it enslaves, it incapacitates, it, it places in bondage. But Jesus came to give freedom from the paralysis of sin and that's good news is that good news to you this morning do you know that you're the paralyzed man or woman in the story here do you you know that jesus speaks to each one of you and each one of us he says my son my daughter your sins are forgiven now rise take your mat and go out Do you know that Jesus came to release us from the bonds of guilt and condemnation that that tied us down? Do Do you know that He's proven He has power to deliver us from sin? He didn't just prove it then, but He proved it time after time in the Gospels. He proved every miracle really was pointing to this greater reality. He has power to forgive sins. And ultimately, it's pointing to the greatest reality that on the cross, He was saying, I want to show you that I have the ability to bear all of your sins. And the resurrection was proof that He had the power to forgive sins. That He rose... We can see that there's a range of responses that we can have to Jesus. And so what is our response is the the question we have to ask. One response is the initial one that the friends had, and we think we have to start there. We have to start where the friends started. Um, Go back in, in your account and look at the friends. It says, when Jesus saw what? Saw their faith. That's right. You see, the first place we must respond to News of Jesus being present, news of who Jesus is, as we respond to Him in faith. We need to come to Him in faith. We need to pursue Him in faith. Come expectantly. You know, nothing stopped these men. You know, I, I imagine when they got to the door and everybody else was there because they wanted something from Jesus, they felt like they needed something from Jesus. They're like, "Yeah, wait in line. You know, wait in line, guys. You know, I'm here too. I'm waiting for something. I'm waiting for my own healing." And so they, they kick this guy, this paralyzed man out of the curb, and they can't get in. Everybody there is really relatively selfish. You think about today, "Oh well, my goodness, they didn't let this guy on the stretcher in?" Well, no. Because they, they were like all of us. They were aware of what they wanted to get from Jesus. But these guys were not deterred. Nothing stopped them. Not the weight of their friend as they're going up the steps, carrying the stretcher. Not the unyielding crowd. Not even vandalizing somebody else's home in order to get their friend where he needed to go. That says a lot about their care and love for him. And and as a total aside, I was thinking about the application for us. And this is not the main idea of 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 the miracle, but... But boy, I wonder: Do we care for people like that here? When it's difficult, when the weight is heavy, when there's obstacles before us, do we love each other like that enough that we would carry people to what they really need? Do we do we help introduce people to Jesus? Is that what we do in fellowship? Do we do we see people sinning and say, "Come with me; I'm going to take you to Jesus so that you can get your greatest needs met"? Do we see unbelievers around us? Do we carry them to Jesus, and say, "You need you need forgiveness, and, and I, I want to take you there, no matter what"? But what? What their response was is is ultimately one of faith. They really believed the man needed to get to Jesus. They really believed that Jesus could and would heal the man. They just didn't know what the greatest healing was he needed. They had the kind of faith that didn't turn around when the crowds rebuffed them, didn't stop when the people must have yelled up, Hey, quit it! I, I guarantee you Peter was yelling at them. I mean, it's, it's Mark's being kind because Mark was a disciple of Peter, by the way. So that's not in the Bible. I don't know that, but I, I believe that. Peter was probably, probably yelling at them. They were undeterred by the cost that they would incur. They, they didn't stop after they opened up the hole above the roof and, and people maligned them. They had faith and they finished what they came to do, and they they got their friend to where Jesus was. There's commentator Alan Cole, and he says, he says this could be a veritable sermon on the text of James 2.26, illustrating the truth that faith, unless it shows its reality by action, is unreal and self-deceptive and therefore cannot be expressed. expected to achieve results. These guys had active, real faith. They came to Jesus. Is that our response? Do we see who Jesus is and do we come to Him? Is that our response? Do we expect Him to heal us of our greatest need? Jesus saw their faith and responded to their faith in Him. It wasn't... Their faith wasn't in their ability to accomplish anything. They're lowering the man down, didn't do anything. When they lowered him down, he was still not healed until Jesus did something. But in one sense it did everything because it placed their friend before the object of their faith. That's what our faith does. It puts us before the object of our faith in a posture of humility. And God, in His grace and His mercy, He sees our faith and He says, My son, my daughter, your sins are forgiven. Now be healed. But do we come in faith? Do we come expectantly? Is that a response? Another response we're meant to have is that faith obeys, gets up and goes home. I don't mean that you get up right now and you go home. I want you to stay here, at least for a few minutes. Um, but faith obeys. He didn't respond to Jesus by saying, "I'm not sure I can really do this, Jesus. And this, this seems pretty difficult. You know, I've been paralyzed for a while. Um, okay, you can say get up, but I got to actually do it." So this man actually puts his faith in Christ, and he gets up. He responds. That wasn't a small thing for that guy. And then he gets up, and then he responds, and he takes up his mat. His muscles. Probably weren't used to that. He picks up the mat and then he goes home. He obeys and, and that's a, that's, that's really a picture of resting and trusting in God's finished work. He goes home. You know, are you resting? Are you trusting in your greatest need being met? Do you respond in obedience and faith and are you resting in that? Now the response we're meant to have we can see here is the response in joy that not just the friends had, but that, that the whole crowd had. It says that they were amazed and glorified God. You know, if, if, if we we're going to put a main idea together, I'd say really the main idea of this whole passage is that Jesus, he heals the paralysis of our sin by forgiving us. Does that amaze you? Do you glorify God for that? Do you live in the good of that each and every day? You see, Jesus does heal the paralysis of our sin by forgiving us. He doesn't tell the paralyzed man his healing wasn't important, but he puts it in his proper place. You have needs this morning. You have financial needs, I'm sure. You have physical needs, ailments. You have... Needs for your kids, um, needs for your family, relational needs, you have all kinds of needs that you come here today with that you 're aware of, but like romans eight thirty two tells us if he has met our greatest need if God has not withheld his son, but has freely given him up for us all. How will he not with him also graciously give us all things? And so what we're meant to do is rest in our greatest need being met and say, Jesus, I'm going to trust you that you're not going to withhold whatever it is that I need. And I'm going to rest in that, but I'm also going to have joy in that. And I'm not going to be distracted by all these lesser desires competing and telling me that they're more important because I'm going to believe you that the greatest needs have already been met. And if that's true, then I can trust you to meet all of what I truly need. You know, if that man had not been healed, think about it for a moment. Because that man's dead now, by the way. That was 2,000 some years ago. That man's dead. He still died. His body went in the ground, rigor mortis. Had set in, but if he had not been healed from his paralysis, and the the account stopped with Jesus saying, "My sons, your sins are forgiven," you, that man, we can be sure would still be rejoicing in heaven just as greatly as I know he is now. I, I love knowing that, yeah, my mom had cancer and she died. But she's rejoicing in heaven. And one day, too, because my faith is in Christ, no matter what happens to my physical body, no matter what my needs are, I know that the greatest one's been met, and that gives me joy. He experienced the ultimate healing that Jesus gives and that Jesus extends to all humanity. You see, when Jesus extended his hand to that man when he extended his words to that man it was an extension really and a foreshadowing of how he was going to extend his forgiveness to each and every one here and he says my son my daughter your sins are forgiven you now now get up take up your beds and walk i've already healed you even if you have yet to experience the physical healing i've already given you the spiritual healing you see he extended his arms on the cross He was laid bare before all of mankind and he received the punishment that we deserved and he extended his arms for us to to look fully on his suffering for us. And he extended his arms also as an invitation to come to God the Father through him, through his sacrifice. To come and receive the healing of all of our sins through those outstretched arms. They revealed the ultimate glory of God among men, really. See, everybody who places their faith in him, who responds to him, who trusts in his sinless life, his death, and his resurrection, his ultimate miracle that proved he has the authority to forgive sins, we can receive full and complete healing from the paralysis of sin. I want to close with going to ask the band to come up. Um, I was texting back and forth with Joe about closing songs and I said, you know, something joyful because all of our sins have been forgiven. So I don't know what song we're going to do, but I want to respond with a joyful song. Before I do that, I want to share with you just a quote from a song that we sing at Christmas. And I'm not sure why we only sing it at Christmas, but a song by a guy named Isaac Watts. He wrote in Joy to the World. He says, No more let sins and sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found.